Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. So as Mac mentioned before, we are launching into a new sermon series today called Nucleus. And if this is your first Sunday with us that you're here, usually when we do a sermon series, we're tackling a topic or a challenge together, and usually there's a personal focus to it. But for this sermon series, we're going to be doing things a little differently. And we're talking about, ultimately, about our church and what is at the core, what is at the center of our church, our community of faith. And there's still going to be some personal pieces that I hope that we'll learn and we'll explore and we'll dig through together. But this is going to be a series that's a little different. And once a year, we always set aside time to kind of do this, to focus on who we are as a church and why we do what we do. And so we're calling this series Nucleus. And we're talking about what's at the center. And one of the things that kind of is the obvious answer to get out of the way first is what's at the center of our church is God. What's at the center of our church is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is why we gather together. But I want to go beyond the obvious and talk about specifically us. What do we do? Why do we gather? Why do we think this matters? Why do we think this is important? And kind of answer those questions together over the next couple of weeks. And so I picked this title Nucleus because the definition of Nucleus is that it is the central and most important part of an object, group, or movement forming the basis of its activity and growth. Now, when I said nucleus, some of us had flashbacks to grade 10 science and sitting at a test and looking at this diagram of a cell and trying to figure out, well, okay, the nucleus, that's always the easy one to pick because that's the big one in the middle of the cell. But what is a mitochondria? I still don't think I know. That's why I took physics and why I took chemistry for the rest of high school because I like those ones a little better. So biology majors, nothing against you. You will understand this more than I do, and that's okay. But when we talk about this idea of nucleus as applying to a group, a movement, or an object, we've got to ask this question. Which one of these words best describes the church? Are we an object? Are we a group? Are we a movement? And I want to take us, we're going to start with uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to spend a bit of time in Matthew's Gospel today and then jump to one of the other Gospels for a moment at the end. But in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew is telling the story of Jesus. And he's telling the story, and he often includes more of these interactions that Jesus has with his disciples between the times when Jesus is with the crowds. And so later on in Jesus' ministry, he's probably walked with his disciples for two and a half, approaching almost three years. It's getting closer to the end of his ministry. And he's walking with his disciples. He has just his closest 12 around him, and he asks them this question. He says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man is a title that Jesus used to refer to himself. And what he was communicating when he said Son of Man is that he's talking about how he is connected to all of humanity. And so Jesus used these kind of two terms to describe himself. And Matthew focuses on Son of Man. The other gospel writers often use the term Son of God because they're trying to emphasize that Jesus is both fully human and fully God, that he's God himself put on flesh, stepped into our world. And he asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Now, this is not reincarnation. When they say you are like John the Baptist, they're saying you are the next iteration of John the Baptist's thought. Oftentimes in hockey, 
I don't follow hockey that much, but I mean, we all know who Wayne Gretzky is, or, or likely we all will know who Gret- Wayne Gretzky is for a couple more decades. But everyone's always, well, who's the next Wayne Gretzky? And I don't even know because I don't follow hockey right now. It was Sidney Crosby, and I don't know. You probably know some names after that. But we say, who is the next Wayne Gretzky? We're not saying that Wayne Gretzky is reborn, but we're saying, who's the next player that plays the way Wayne Gretzky did? And so in this passage, when the disciples say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or other prophets, they're saying, you are like these other prophets that were in the highlight of our history. And Jesus says, okay, but who do you say I am? Who do my disciples, the people that are closest to him, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And when he says Messiah, that is a word that is steeped with meaning because it means the anointed one, the one that God always promised throughout their whole history would come to restore Israel, that would come to inaugurate God's kingdom, that would come and change and fulfill and do everything. And so Peter is recognizing, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are this anointed one. And Jesus responds to Peter this way. He says, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, For my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. Jesus gives Peter a new name. His name was Simon Peter and he drops the Simon and says, no, you're going to be Peter now because your name carries meaning. And later on, if you read through the New Testament, Acts, for the first portion of Acts, follows what Peter did after Jesus' death and resurrection. And then later on, Peter even wrote a couple letters to the church that are in our scriptures. But there's, when all of our scriptures are a translation from the original language that Jesus spoke, Jesus wasn't speaking modern day 20th century English, he was speaking Greek. And there's a little translation thing in here that helps us understand church, understand is, are we an object, are we a movement, are we a group, what is it? And so when he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, the origin of our English word church is it's what's called a transliteration. It means we took a word from a different language and we just kind of stole it, put it in English, but we, we changed the spelling to make it fit English rules. Whether or not there are any rules to English is out for debate, but we took the German word Kirche, and I apologize if I butchered that pronunciation, I don't speak German. We took this German word, which means temple or house of the Lord, this word that describes a physical place. And we put that into our scripture when it says, when Jesus says, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, that word in German and that word when it was brought over to English meant a physical place. But there's a problem. That translation is actually an interpretation It's not a word for word, what did Jesus say? It's an interpretation of, well, this is what we think Jesus meant. But when we look at the Greek word that Jesus used, he actually, what he said to Peter was, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. And that's a Greek word. And ecclesia doesn't mean a structure. The word ecclesia means an assembly of people who are gathered and called for a purpose. So it's a way of describing any group of people who have come together around a cause or a a mission or a meaning, and they have a purpose that they're trying to achieve. In fact, every time, except for a few little instances, ecclesia in our New Testament gets written as church. But one of the times ecclesia doesn't get called church is when they describe this event that happened in the book of Acts, when Paul was preaching 
in Ephesus. And he was preaching about the gospel. He was preaching about who Jesus is. And people were starting to really get it and say, yes, Jesus is God. This is who we're going to follow. We're going to turn away from our idols and we're going to follow the living God, Jesus Christ. But Ephesus had an industry of silversmiths. And these silversmiths made all their money by making silver idols of Artemis, one of the local pagan deities. And so they formed an ecclesia, They formed a mob that went to the town leaders to get Paul arrested. And so in that point in your scripture, when you read that story, they describe it as a mob or a gathering or a group. So in that spot of our scriptures, we translate this properly. And so when we look at this word ecclesia, when Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, he's not talking about a structure. He's talking about a movement. He's talking about his followers being a movement of people, not a physical place. And so it's up to us when we read our New Testament scriptures, every time we see the word church, we need to make a choice in our minds to redefine the word as a movement of people with a specific purpose. And so even this place, we say we're Grand Valley Church, or or oftentimes we get called around town here, oh, it's the church up on the hill, because this is the North Hill. It's You know, we're in the prairies. This is what amounts to a hill. But when we say Grand Valley Church, we don't actually mean the building. We mean the people. We mean us who are gathered around a common purpose that we have been called into. And so when Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church, he's saying, you will be the foundation of the movement that I am building. And so through this series, we're going to talk about nucleus in the terms of This is what drives us as a movement, that we're not limited by the building. Now, yes, we live in a culture where we can't, we live in a climate, I should say, where we can't just meet outside all the time because it gets pretty darn cold around here. So we do need a structure to meet in, but the structure is a tool that serves the purposes of the assembly of people. And so later on, Jesus, when he talks to his disciples about this concept, he he doesn't actually talk about it that often, but a few times he does. And one of the last times he does happens after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, when Jesus was executed, when he was killed on the cross, when he gave himself up as a sacrifice, the disciples scattered. They didn't know what to do. They spent three days waiting. What's going on? We thought this guy was building a movement. Well, what did this mean? And then Jesus rises from the grave and starts appearing to them. And suddenly all the things that Jesus was saying start to make sense a little more now that they're like, oh, that's what you were talking about. And one of these times when Jesus meets with his disciples, he tells them to go to a specific mountain in the area of Galilee. And we pick this up at the very last portion of the Gospel of Matthew. This is the way that Matthew ends his Gospel. It's the the thought and the moment he wants us to linger with at the end of reading his story of Jesus' life. He says this in Matthew 28, 16, Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped but some of them doubted. And I love that he includes this little piece. It is okay to doubt. Even some of Jesus' closest friends still doubted that he was really there in front of them. Even though he had appeared to them multiple times, he let them touch them, he ate food with them, he cooked for them. But when they gathered together, some of them still were like, is this really real? But Jesus came and he told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He's saying, I have all authority over everything there is because he is God himself. 
And he says, therefore, because of all this authority, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commandments I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now we call this passage the Great Commission because this is the moment that Jesus lays out super clear for his followers, this is the purpose. This is the goal. This is the reason of what you are gathered around is this task that I have given you to shape the world. See, we get to be partners with God. That's what he's calling his disciples into. We get to be partners with God in his act of redeeming and restoring the world. And how we do it, he lays out here. He gives this mission. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teach them to obey the commandments I have given you. And he gives a promise, and I'm going to be with you. And so the mission that Jesus gives his followers is to make disciples of all the nations and to teach those disciples the way of Jesus. Now, the early church needed to figure out how do we describe this mission that we have? How do we describe what our purpose is? How do we organize? And, and as the church grew, and they had this whole dilemma of like, how do we organize? How do we make things happen? How do we not just go off, all off in our own directions? How do we keep central around what is important for us as a gathered group of people? And so what the early church did is they borrowed a word from their culture. They borrowed a word, a Greek word called euangelion. And this word means a, to bring good news or to be a bearer of good news. And they used it to describe making disciples by sharing the gospel. And the gospel just means the good news about Jesus Christ. And over time, that Greek word, euangelion, became what we call today evangelism when it went through kind of through the process of becoming Latin and then becoming English. And so we have this, these two words that we use that we pull out of that Great Commission. We have evangelism, which means sharing the good news about Jesus Christ with everyone, and discipleship, which is teaching and helping people grow in their relationship with Jesus. This is the way that we kind of summarize and pull it all together to say, what is the purpose of the church? Well, the purpose of the church is evangelism, sharing the message of Jesus, and discipleship, helping people grow in their relationship and their walk with Jesus. This is at the foundational core of what is the purpose of this gathering of people is that. Now, a couple years ago, our church went through a process where we took kind of what our mission statement was and we, we looked back at what it had been through the history and we looked at like what was the purpose? Why was this church formed 30 years ago? What was the heartbeat of the people that said, we want to plant a church that's going to reach people? And over time, our church has continually kind of questioned and evolved and said, you know, are we explaining this the best way that helps us see crystal clear what our purpose is? And so a couple of years ago, we refined our statement. We tweaked it just a little bit because we wanted it to say these two things as clearly as possible and to see these two things as deeply linked to one another. That it's not just evangelism on one hand and discipleship on another, but these two things are deeply united and linked together. And so as a church, we said our mission is leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus. And you'll hear that phrase at least once every Sunday on purpose, because that is our center point to remind ourselves, this is why we're doing what we're doing. This is why we're choosing to gather together, is so that we can together lead people, which is evangelism, into a growing relationship, which is discipleship, 
with Jesus. And evangelism and discipleship are not just a one-two. They actually overlap and they intermingle with each other. That as we learn and discover who Jesus is, we're building the practices of how do we live in a relationship with our Savior? How do we live in the relationship with the one who created us all and desires a relationship where he shows his love and his grace and his presence to us? And so that leads to the question, well, how do we live this out? What does it mean to lead people into a relationship with Jesus. And so we're going to focus on the first part of our statement today. Next Sunday, we're going to talk more about, well, what is a growing relationship? How do we actually grow in our faith? How do we walk further with Christ? Then we're going to take a Sunday and we're going to say, well, how are we living this out? What does that mean specifically for us? And then we're going to come to our Vision Sunday. And that was what Mac was talking about a little earlier on March 15th, where we're going to be doing a special Sunday about this is our purpose, this is our direction. And then in the evening, we're going to have a special evening service that also is our yearly AGM as part of that too. But when it says, what does it mean to lead people into a relationship with Jesus? That word evangelism, when I said it early, some of us had some thoughts pop in our head because there is a lot of baggage attached to the word evangelism. There's a lot of ways that over the years, the church has tried to oversimplify and distill evangelism into a step-by-step guide of saying, if you do these things, if you have this conversation in this order and this steps, someone will choose to give their life to Jesus. But the problem with that approach is that when we take what is a relationship with Jesus and we turn it into a strategy, we actually create a version of following Jesus that is very easy to reject. When we try to boil it down into, well, if I just say this and I convince them of that, and then I say this and I convince them of that, and then I say this, they're going to have an aha moment where they give their life to Jesus. And there's some flaws in that process. And so I want to actually start with what are some of the ways that we as followers of Jesus kind of do evangelism poorly? What are some of the ways that we actually don't help people encounter who Jesus is. And and if I offend you in this, it's not intentional on my part, because this may be something we're like, but but that's how I came to faith, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm going to say in this is there are ways that we can talk about who Jesus is that are beneficial and helpful. And there's also ways that sometimes set up people to have stumbling blocks further in their walk with God. And so the first one comes this way, and it often can be encapsulated by this thought. If I can convince them that the Bible is true, then they'll have to believe in Jesus. Now, as a disclaimer, I fully believe that Scripture is true, that Scripture is sufficient for revealing who God is. I read the Bible every day. I hope that that's something you aspire to as well, is spending time in God's Word. But if we take this approach, if we say, if I can convince someone that the Bible is true, then they have to believe in Jesus. The problem with that approach is if someone just says, no, I disagree, I don't think the accounts of the Old Testament match history. They've immediately dismissed your whole underlying premise. And if you say, well, you have to believe in the Old Testament the way that I do to follow Jesus, you've actually just created a giant exit door for them to check out and say, no, no, that's not the way that I see Scripture. Because the problem is is when we take what's called biblical literalism, which means that we say whatever we read in Scripture, we need to just understand at face value, surface level we actually don't respect the way that our scripture was written. Because our Bible is steeped 
in metaphor and imagery and people trying to understand their story and understand who God is and reveal God through that. And we're, if that's something where all of a sudden you're like, you've got questions popping up, we're actually going to cover this as part of a series after Easter. We're going to dig into how do we know the Bible's true and how do we read it well and how do we understand it. And I'm really excited for that series that's going to come up and that part of that series. But the problem with biblical literalism is it often leads to biblical legalism. It becomes where we take whatever was written and we say, well, we have to follow this exactly. And so how do we take all these rules that were meant for a different people at a different time and say, well, we need to apply those today. And when we take that approach, we start creating legalistic Christians. We start taking our scripture and turning it into a rule book to essentially say, here's the bar and you don't match up. And actually what it does is it tends to drive people away from church. In fact, this is, there's been a, tons of research done over the last few decades about why do people walk away from churches. And legalism and hip, the hypocrisy that comes with it is always at the top of the list, usually number one or number two. But the second approach that we often take, and, and maybe you've had some experience with this or maybe someone talked to you about this, is the if I can show them how sinful they are, they'll realize their need for Jesus. And maybe you've heard the term like fire and brimstone preaching, where it's all about whoever's up front is talking about, well, just how horrible and wretched we are, but you have a get out of hell free card and his name is Jesus. And that's true, but that does not address and embrace the way that Jesus interacted with people. It doesn't embrace the way that he responded with love and with grace. It doesn't address the fact that who Jesus spent the most time with were the people who were furthest from God. In fact, if this is the approach, and maybe you've had, I've had this experience once in my life where I was walking in a different city and someone on a street corner was doing street preaching and and proclaiming the name of Jesus, and I'm like, good on you, but I really feel awful when I walk by you. I don't feel the love of who Jesus is when I listen to you tell me what a wretched person I am. So, How, why this matters, and this is why I'm going this way, is how we share the message of Jesus with someone determines the starting point that their faith will have. And so if we introduce people to Jesus through legalism, we create a Christian legalist. We create a legalistic Christian. And if we introduce someone to Jesus through fear, we create a fearful Christian. Now, both of those terms, I believe, are an oxymoron. I believe that those are a term that is inherently false. Jesus had a lot to say about legalism. The last series we just did where we talked about your failure is not final. We looked at this parable that was a whole story about Jesus actually telling the religious leaders of the day, your rules, well, they were good for then, but you've taken them way too far. And what I came to do is something completely different. And same thing with fear. If we introduce people to Jesus through this image and this metaphor that God is out to get you and wants to condemn you. You create a follower of Jesus who spends their whole life terrified that they're going to cross a line and lose their salvation. And they spend their life feeling fearful of like, well, am I good enough? The answer is no, we're not. We get grace because of who God is and his love for us. We can't be good enough. We shouldn't even try. But as Jesus works in us, as Jesus shapes us, we can become more like Jesus. And so we've got to ask this question. What's a better way to share 
the good news about Jesus. And I want to give a really novel approach to this. Start with Jesus. What if when we want to talk about our faith, we just start and end with Jesus? It's fascinating. There was a, a video clip that was done, and it was kind of these like man-on-the-street interviews where these people took a camera and a microphone, and they would just stop random people and say, can we ask you two questions? Is it okay if we record it? And so they'd get people to say, kind of like, they would get kind of their honest feedback. And they, the first question they'd say is, what do you think about Jesus? And usually the responses were things like, well, you know, he had some good things to say. He, he talked about loving your enemies, and that's good. And it was overwhelmingly, the responses they got were positive in their inflection. And then they'd ask him a second question. They'd say, and so what do you think about Christians? And immediately it kind of gets a little frigid. It gets a little cool. And it's like, well, they're judgmental. Well, they're, they're hypocrites. Well, they're always trying to tell me what I should do with my life. They're always telling me I'm not good enough. And it's like, where's this distance? How did we get from where I believe that our society and our culture still has a favorable understanding of who Jesus is, if they know who Jesus is at all. But when it comes to the church, we've got some ground to make up. And so a better way of sharing the good news, because it is good news, is to just start with Jesus. And when we talk about Jesus, to start with his love, not fear or legalism. In fact, this is something that Jesus did time and time again. And I really encourage you, if you're like, I don't know where to read in my Bible, start with the Gospel of John. It's probably one of my favorite ones that I recommend to people. Start with the Gospel of John. Because John is writing his Gospel, his story of Jesus, later than the other guys. And so he has a copy of Matthew and Mark and Luke already. And he says, I'm going to include the stories that they didn't have the space to fill in. Because how do you take three years of someone's life and everything that Jesus did and condense it into one gospel? You can't. There's so much more that Jesus did. So John focuses and he tells this neat little story that's interwoven in his gospel about a man named Nicodemus. And you may not know who Nicodemus is, but you know this verse. You've heard this verse before somewhere. Jesus said, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. You've probably heard that verse before. Now, who Jesus was talking to was a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Jewish religious leader. Let's rewind the story back to verse 1 of John 3. He says, Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. So he is one of the legalists. And when it says Jewish religious leader, he is part of their Sanhedrin, their group of religious leaders that governs Judaism. And he comes after dark one evening. We can miss and skip over that and not realize the significance. The significance of Nicodemus coming after dark is he did not want anyone to know that he was going to Jesus to ask a question. He did not want anyone to clue in that this leader of their religious law, this teacher, this Pharisee, was going to this rabbi named Jesus to talk to him. And this is how he opens up when he comes to speak to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. See, he is admitting something that is so incredibly deeply true. He recognized that the way Jesus came, that the way he taught, was something completely different than how they understood their scriptures. Jesus came and he was doing something that they couldn't comprehend. 
And so Nicodemus goes at night and he asks these questions. And Jesus, in his response, says that passage that we know so well. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him so that we would all have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus pops up two more times in the Gospel of John. We can miss over him very easily. But the second time Nicodemus pops up, there's a, the, the rest of the Pharisees and the religious leaders are trying to figure out a way to arrest Jesus. And Nicodemus pipes up and says, wait a second, we can't arrest him until we have an accusation and a trial. And he says, no, no, we know our law. We need to follow our law. He defends Jesus, not by defending who Jesus is, but by appealing to their law because he doesn't want them to know that he, he kind of likes this Jesus guy. And then when Jesus is killed, when Jesus' body is hanging dead on the cross, when he's given himself up as a sacrifice to make a new path open for everyone to be in a relationship with God, who goes to take Jesus' body down from the cross? It's not any of his disciples. Nicodemus. Nicodemus, this leader in the church, this secret disciple, so to speak, goes to the cross And with Joseph of Arimathea, they take Jesus' body down and they lay him in a tomb and they prepare him for burial. When Jesus' own closest followers scattered and hid for their lives, Nicodemus was the person who came to take care of Jesus' body. But it all goes back to the beginning of John, to the beginning when he went and he asked questions of Jesus. Now, when we don't feel safe enough to ask the pressing questions. And I believe that in our world today, that the conversations about faith and spirituality and the meaning and purpose of life, those questions weigh on us heavily, whether we will admit them or ever speak them out loud. But when we don't feel safe enough to ask the pressing questions, you know where we go? We go to Google. We, you've all done it. You go and you type in, what about this? What's this skin thing on my arm? No, we do that. (laughs) But if you go to Google and you start typing in the words, what happens? You know when you type into Google and it pops up suggestions of what Google thinks you're searching for? And it's their way of of trying to suggest, hey, this is what we think you're going to find. If you type in the words, what happens? The first response is almost always, what happens when you die? If you search, what is the, one of the questions that pops up always is meaning of life. These are the questions that we ask Google because we don't know who to ask them to in person. And the truth is, Google, as great as it is, as wise as it is, all Google does is tries to point you at what it thinks you're looking for. Google itself doesn't have the answers. Google is just trying to be a middle person pointing to, well, I think this is what you're looking for. But wouldn't it be better if we could have some of those conversations in person? Wouldn't it be better to have a relationship with someone that you could go to, that you could talk and wrestle through these things? And so when we talk about how do we share who Jesus is, there's a question we have to ask of ourselves first. Am I becoming the kind of person that someone with questions about faith would want to talk to? Am I the kind of person that someone with questions about faith would want to have a conversation with, would want to sit down over a coffee, would want to, to maybe sit down over a meal and say, you know, why, why, do you, why do you think the meaning of life is? And a question usually won't come out that way. It'll come up with, why do you go to that church on Sundays? Or what do you think about the Bible? What do you think about, like these questions will come out 
but they'll only come out if people feel safe enough to ask. These are vulnerable, authentic questions. And people won't ask them if they don't feel comfortable enough. And so we've got to ask these questions. Am I becoming the kind of person that someone could have that conversation with? And as I talk with them, it's not about having all the answers, but am I able to share what Jesus has done in my life? Are we able to just share from our own experience, this is what my walk with Jesus has done to change me? Because that's ultimately what people are looking for. They're not looking for the historical reasons why we believe the resurrection is true, and there are plenty of them. They're not looking for where's the imperial empirical evidence? Where's the data? They're looking for where's the heart? Where's the love that we're all feeling like we're missing? Where's the sense of meaning and purpose that we're all longing to look for and fill through often whatever means we can? See, when we talk at this church about being a community that is dedicated to leading people into a growing relationship, that means we want to be part of of seeing God answer those questions in people's lives. But God does it, first and foremost, through us. And so when we say leading people into a growing relationship, it means showing how Jesus has changed our lives, helping people discover who Jesus is, and engaging with people's questions, fears, and doubts about faith. And part of that means there's three words that we sometimes have to say that we don't want to say. And that is, I don't know. We have to be okay that if someone asks us a question, I'm actually saying, that's a good question, I don't know. But then you add to it, can we figure it out together? Are you willing to explore this? Are you willing to walk with me? Are we willing to learn? Are we willing to dig in? Are we willing to look for what matters? And we believe in doing this not just one-on-one, but how do we do this as a community? Because all of us together can represent who Jesus is better than any one of us can by ourselves. Every one of us has flaws. Every one of us has failures. Every one of us has mistakes. But together as a community of faith, when we gather, we can represent and show, look, this is who Jesus is. This is why when we gather here, why when I'm putting together my messages and talking and working through, I'm always trying to ask the question, if someone is here for the very first time, has no experience with faith, could they understand what we're talking about? Because oftentimes, we throw a lot of jargon in. Christianity often has jargon, even words like evangelism and discipleship. We may not know what those words mean, but do we define them? Do we work through them together? Do we show what they are? How do we be a place a community that someone, no matter what their background is, can come and experience and get a picture or a taste or a sense of who Jesus is. Because that's ultimately what God is calling the church to. When he gave his disciples that great commission, it wasn't just for them in that time in the first century. That was a commissioning for all of us to continue through till the day whenever it is when Jesus will return. That is our task in front of us. And so here at Grand Valley, we summarize this by saying our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. 
And next week, we're going to look at the second half of this statement and say, what is a growing relationship? What does it mean to always be pushing ourselves deeper in our walk with God, of understanding that there is more that God wants to reveal of himself to us that we haven't experienced yet? How do we lean into that together as a community? And so I want to invite you to be here next Sunday as we dig into that. And before I pray to wrap things up, I also just want to repeat that on March 15th, that is a date to throw on your calendar to plan to be here for sure. Because in the morning, we're going to be wrapping this all up together and we're going to be talking about something called partnership that we have here. And partnership is a way of us making a covenant to each other of saying, yes, this is what we're on board for. This is what we're doing together as an assembled group of people. Not as a building, not as an organization, but as a movement. And so we're going to be talking about that in the morning. And then in the evening, we're going to kind of do a part two of what does that really mean? How are we going to live that out? And our annual meeting is going to be part of that. But on your way out, I want to ask you to stop by the Connect Center and myself or someone will be there and we're going to be handing out our annual reports. And it's a little booklet. There's a chunk that's the business and the details and the financial reports and those are important too. But what I want to encourage you to do as you read through that is to look for what's God doing in our story. And at the end, at the very end of the annual report, I've got five questions. And I want to encourage you to spend some time to sit down and think about those questions and pray through what they mean for you. Because our annual report isn't just numbers and facts. I believe it's also a discipleship tool, that this is an opportunity for us to grow in our own walk with God as we read and we work through this together. And so let me wrap up just with a word of prayer. God, thank you that you, that you desire such a deep, life-giving relationship with every one of us. God, we know from the, the parables that we looked at last week that you are celebrating every time that someone chooses to understand their purpose and identity is found in you when we put our trust in you. And so God, as we talk about this together as a church, what are we doing as a community of faith? I just pray that this heartbeat would continue to grow inside of us, that this desire to see people's lives transformed by you would continue to drive us forward. And Lord, for each one of us individually, even me, would we ask that question, am I becoming the kind of person that someone with questions about faith wants to talk to? And would you start helping us develop those abilities, to develop those character traits, to develop that piece of your presence that lives with us, that reveals who you are to others. So Lord, we ask these things all in the name of your son, Jesus, together. Amen. So folks, hope you have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.